LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Jason Horsley, who joins us to discuss his book, The Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse. In today's post-truth world, we are becoming inundated with fantasy fiction, alternate truth, fake news and grossly oversimplified, wildly exaggerated conspiracy theories in which cryptocratic power structures and shadowy elites rule our fates. But suppose the truth is both stranger than any fiction and more nuanced and disturbing than any theory. Suppose it is not conspiracy, but complicity that creates our world. Beginning as an investigation into the author's childhood inside a closet aristocracy of so-called progressive British entrepreneurs, The Vice of Kings uncovers a shocking and deeply disturbing history with links to powerful, high-profile individuals and organizations within the media, entertainment, government, law enforcement, the intelligence services, and more. By juxtaposing disc jockey Jimmy Savile's secret cultural, criminal, and political affiliations in the second half of the 20th century with the life and teachings of Aleister Crowley in the first, it uncovers an alarming body of evidence suggesting that organized child abuse is not only the dark side of occultism, but the shadowy secret at the heart of culture, both ancient and modern. Hello and welcome, Jason, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks, Greg. Today, Jason, we're going to be talking about your new book, The Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism, and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse. Before we dive into that, for listeners who don't know, tell us just a little bit about your work um, as a writer, the background to this new book, because it's, to say the least, very personal. Yeah, well... um, uh, how, how would I even begin there? So I've been writing pretty much my whole life. Um, I started out writing about movies, and even my first published books were, were about movies. And uh, in 2013, I think it was, I started a book called Seen and Not Seen, Confessions of a Movie Autist, which was going back, uh, looking back over my previous film writings, The Blood Poets, um, and kind of using them as a template to, to understand myself better, sort of psychoanalyzing myself through my, my, my lifelong obsession with movies. And um, that led to me looking into the life and death of my brother, Sebastian Horsley, um, kind of unexpectedly. Uh, like, uh, as I got was nearing the end of the book, I just found myself drawn to to look into my brother's life and try to understand 
how and why he had died. He died of a heroin overdose in 2010. And there were just a lot of indications that um, the reasons for his death were not uh, understood by anyone in his family or anyone in, in the world. And uh, that led me to obviously look into my brother's past, which was my own past, and um, by extension into our father's and our paternal grandfather's past. And I, I began to find out some quite surprising things about my my family history and my ancestry and some surprising overlaps because I said that I started writing about movies, that's true, but I also had a parallel interest which which was in um, the the hidden uh, side of our culture and our society in terms of uh, deep politics, conspiracies, uh, the occult, those those sorts of subjects. So I was also writing about those subjects, but very separate from my film writing. And with seen and not seen, the two kind of collided. But most surprisingly of all, uh, they collided over the, the kind of raised earth of my own family history. And um, so that that led to a series of essays that was called Occult Yorkshire, which I did at my blog, uh, looking into the Fabian Society to begin with because of the uh, connection that had to my paternal grandfather, like he was a, one of the founding Fabians in, in our local area of England, which was Hull, Kingston-upon-Hull, and that was the proverbial rabbit hole. Like I, I'd heard about the Fabian Society, and I'd heard them about them in the context of conspiracy theories and whatnot, but I'd never taken the time to look into it. I only did so because of this personal connection. And what I found was, was quite startling and remarkable, and it led to the first part of, of The Vice of Kings um, and all of the different connections I uncovered there. And then, um, as you know, the second part was was uh, a kind of separate examination of the, of the life and work of Alistair Crowley, which related to a lifelong interest that I'd had myself in Crowley, well, maybe not lifelong, but from my early 20s. Um, and because of the, the obvious correlations and intersects between what I discovered to be the, the occult um, underlayer of British society via my research into the Fabian Society, uh, the obvious overlap between that and, and Crowley being the, probably the most influential occultist of, of the 20th century. Well, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about Fabian Society and Fabianism, what that is for people who don't know in due course, and we'll come on to Crowley in due course as well. Let's just say, I mean, what you've been outlining basically is that prior to this book, perhaps, but certainly as you started to put it together, the, the writings for it, uh, you began to unearth a network, shall we say, of people, places, events, ideas that encom mm. encompassed the media, entertainment sectors, government, law enforcement, intelligence services, encompassing high-ranking uh, individuals, and organizations as well, influential people, powerful people, what some people refer to as the elite. And you mentioned the term conspiracy uh, a couple of minutes ago. And what I'm outlining here may sound familiar to a lot of people, but I found in your book, and I've spent a long time looking at these things myself, but your book, the fact that it is so personal and it involves your family history, uh, lends it a different quality 
in my opinion, to a lot of uh, writers who have spoken about this sort of network in disinterested terms almost. But the fact that this, that your family that you discovered through looking back into their past, as you say, which is your own past, that these connections started to appear, your book read very differently to the reams and reams of other things, uh, books and, you know, websites, events, talks I've been to where people are discussing these, these same things. Yeah, uh, well, I understand. I mean, it is, um, it's easy to get disoriented in, in this field and trying to, uh, map the exact difference that you're talking about that uh, for myself as, as the author because yeah I'd spent decades researching conspiracy and and the fact that at a certain point I ended up uh, researching the same subjects while I thought I was just looking into my own personal history was obviously a, a shock and um, it it required a completely different approach of course like the, the degree of sensitivity that I was suddenly having to handle this material with was was radically different previously it had been an intellectual exercise and um what i discovered of course very early on and what i was actually looking to discover uh somewhat consciously and somewhat unconsciously was was why had i been drawn to conspiracy research in the first place in the same way i was trying to figure out why i was so driven to write about movies and um of course the answers you know as always is these things that came back to, to childhood formative experiences and um, in both cases to trauma and uh, well because that's the underlying theme of, of Vice of Kings as well as my previous books um, Seen and Not Seen and Prisoner Infinity that the, um, the unifying principle of control that is, is generally um, I would say oversimplified in conspiracy theory is, I think, traumatization, whether it's local or, or global. And um, when we're dealing with trauma, uh, it's, it's an incredibly sensitive issue. It's not entertainment. It's not intellectual fodder. It's not mere historical research. It's psychotherapy. I mean, uh, it's what, what psychotherapy is, potentially anyway, is, is geared and, and, and uh, shaped to to help us to heal so uh, and this was a trajectory in my own writing from seen and not seen today was that i was becoming more conscious of the need for me to write as a as a therapeutic aid as a means to discover um some sort of wholeness or restore some sort of wholeness to my own psyche so um that i i think that that um I mean, that's much more serious and affair. We can think of mapping world conspiracies as a very serious business. And of course, people who write about it do. But uh, it, it, it isn't really that serious compared to um, trying to restore one's psyche to wholeness and balance. Like that's one's, one's whole life depends on that. And um, what I found with conspiracy research and what I've always found, but, but writing in this way made me more acutely aware of, is that it, it is very, um, intellect based. And it's, um, well, now I'm going to risk getting garbled, but there's something about what I try to uncover with these recent books is, is that, uh, and, and I include it in the summary of conspiracy is not necessarily the correct term when we begin to understand the reach of these 
uh, agendas or these philosophies and the extent to which they engender con- complicity, thereby we become actual a part of the apparent conspiracies that we're uncovering. And at a certain point I had to recognize um, that, yes, there were all these players and all of these agendas that, that fit all the sort of main you know, dots or that re- reproduce the main dots that, that some of the more well-known conspiracy theorists have, have been pro- propagating. But um, that, that I, I was included in, in the um, forces that I was un- uncovering, I was actually a player within that, and I was, I'd become complicit with them. And that the way in which that I was trying to map and deconstruct these agendas was itself engendered in me by the forces I was trying to map. So in other words, the kind of thinking that, that I had been using to understand conspiracy, in quote, was the same kind of thinking that the, in quote, conspiracy had engendered in me. It's very complicated, very difficult to talk about, but the simplest way to say is this whole idea of us and them that is central to most conspiracy theories is inherently incorrect, I think, and it, but paradoxically it's sort of part of the conspiracy is to make us think in these terms of us and them. Yes, I think that's a really important point in understanding conspiracy theory and theorists. Uh, I say it's difficult to express. Um, I can only suggest that, that people basically read your book to, to get, um, a, a grasp, a better grasp on that if they don't feel they, ha- that they have. So the network that I spoke of, and I'm using that word just for want of a better one. Let's call it a shadow network. Let's, let's use a term that a conspiracy theorist might use. One of the things I think understood by anybody who spent any time looking at conspiracy theory is that it's spoken about often as, as like um, an, an underground thing behind the scenes, as it were. But hidden in plain sight is probably a better phrase to use. And we haven't used the term, we haven't touched upon the dimension of this, which is, it's in the title of your book, Culture of Abuse. Sexual abuse, specifically that of minors, is a core theme here. I, I mentioned this to bring into the discussion uh, Jimmy Savile. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he is a high profile individual who kind of, you write about extensively in the book, who exemplifies this sort of, uh, double ex- existence, this, uh, a public life that is one thing and a private life that is something quite different. He is an interesting case because I, I think up to that point, maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, but up to that point in my life anyway, and we're, we're of similar age, so up to the, this point in my life, and I don't remember anyone uh, such a high-profile per- person who was lionized and lauded in their lifetime being undone in such a spectacular fashion by revelations after their death, their reputation being trashed. But it's also interesting for me because I find myself questioning everything that I'd thought about uh, the, the entertainment industry in general, uh, but Jimmy Savile specifically because i was of that generation who grew up with jim fix it and mm-hmm. this guy was on tv constantly not just with his own shows but his, his charity work he was all over the place he was hobnobbing with royalty um he uh had a, a new year's honor at one point was the obe or whatever mb who cares really just some letters <laughs> but he was rewarded by the establishment shall we say for his work and mm-hmm. i not to pat myself on the back but i questioned him from the start in my own mind and it wasn't because I thought there was anything that I actually had any reason to think there was something 
nefarious going on. But I initially just wondered what actually is this guy's talent? Mm. Um, I thought he's not, all right, there was a time when ostensibly unattractive people could be movie stars and pop stars and what have you. These days, people, they like people to be much prettier, don't they? Uh, you know, David Beckham sort of look or, uh, Tom Cruise or whatever happens to be, George Clooney. Uh, they like people to look a certain way and Jimmy Savile had none of that. I just mm-hmm. couldn't establish what his actual talent was and why he had such a high profile. Mm-hmm. And I think that when, and this is something I had to question in myself, uh, to why I'd had, because I thought I was seeing things very clearly and being very honest with myself. When all these revelations came out about him, and again, people must know about Jimmy Savile. If you don't just look up on the internet, get, just go to the Wikipedia page on Jimmy Savile and you'll see how the whole thing panned out. I asked myself, yeah, I thought there was something fishy about it, but it was only because I thought that well, I don't know what it was, but I wasn't surprised by the revelations. But at the same time, I didn't see that coming. So mm. I had to ask some questions about myself and how I perceive things. And what I, what was I compartmentalizing? What was I su- suppressing in my own mind? Mm. Well, maybe this is an example then of what we were talking about earlier, which is a, there's a, a broad stroke conspiracy theory, uh, which I, I, I refer to it as first and second matrix. So we've got... The first matrix, which is the consensus reality, which in this case is that Jimmy Savile is, you know, just a DJ and a, a charity worker and so on and a nice guy. Uh, and then, um, the second matrix is, uh, the alternate perceptions, which is growing more and more in the mainstream, um, which tends to, uh, be overcompensatory. Like, it's, it's so difficult to reconcile the truth about, uh, whoever it is, in this case Jimmy Savile, with the illusion that we were under for so long, that there's a tendency to either sweep it under the rug, which is the general thing, that's what the first matrix, what the consensus tries to do, and just say, oh, well, he was a bad apple, and, you know, there was poor security in place, and so on, and it was the 70s, and come up with all these rationalizations to just sweep it under the rug and forget it happened. Um, or, on the other hand, there's the David Icke uh, you know, approach, which is to extrapolate from this, this very broad stroke idea, um, that ends up with, uh, the society is kind of like the scenario and they live. It's, it's all geared towards, uh, large scale mind control and, uh, that we're all being brainwashed and that we're actually in this completely, uh, or metaphorically anyway, this, this fabricated fake reality and can't actually see what's going on because of these advanced methods of mind control and so on and so forth. Well, I'm probably all familiar with this idea, even if it's just from movies. Now, um, the truth seems to be somewhere in between the two. Like, it, why I talk about the second matrix is if you oversimplify the truth as a way to... Um, as a sort of compensatory mechanism, like you've had your previous version of reality has been destroyed by facts around whatever it is, Jimmy Savile in this case, and if uh, if you can't just sweep it all under the rug, then we our tendency is to is to is to scramble um, and to uh, sort of clutch at all the straws we can we can reach to assemble a new interpretation of reality that whatever, however, you know, threatening and however sinister it is, at least we feel that we understand what's going on. 
we don't like to stay in this liminal space of of as what you what you were just saying you know how could we be so compartmentalized how could we be so wrong about Jimmy Savile um and 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 turn the lens on ourselves and really look at the ways in which we might still be deluded we prefer to to go from one belief system to another so um my what i've been trying to explore with my recent books is um how is it possible? Yeah, how is it possible that we could be so wrong about the society we live in? That, uh, and I'm attempting this in a recent series, also called Psychological Operatives in Hollywood, um, because it 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 constantly bugs me on a day to day basis. I mean, bugs is putting it mildly. Like I I enjoy watching movies, I enjoy watching TV shows, um, but I'm I'm more and more aware of what's going on behind the scenes in the entertainment industry and it creates this never-ending cognitive dissonance between uh, the perception I have of the entertainment industry and its products as a consumer and the perception I have as a researcher and so I'm, I'm constantly trying to bridge these two worlds and it's it's a never-ending challenge and um, it's not sufficient for me to just say well they're all you know satanic uh, pedophiles who belong to the illuminati and they're all mind control manchurian candidates you know and we we're, we're just under the spell of, of of magicians and sorcerers you know that that doesn't satisfy me as an explanation i'm sure it doesn't satisfy you either so then i'm looking <laughs> you know i'm looking for a, a much deeper, more nuanced and more intimate and personal understanding of how it is that we have been traumatized and fragmented and and have dissociated into these um, sort of perceptual matrices where we're actually not perceiving what's happening in front of our eyes. Because I, I do believe that is the case, but that a science fiction or a, um, you know, over-exaggerated conspiracy theory scenario around that doesn't it doesn't help doesn't help us to understand what's happening it's just an oversimplified uh, compensatory narrative to make us feel that we still know what's going on even though we've admitted that we didn't you know know what was going on until we adopted the new david eichian worldview yes i mean we were talking about the archetypal conspiracy researcher if you know a few minutes ago and, and david Icke certainly fits the bill i mean surely he must be the number one I've, I don't know if you have, but I've met David Icke a number of times. I worked with him for about a year. I found him to be a genuine guy. He's just a human being. He's just, when I first spoke to him, he was eating a ham sandwich and he had his mouth full of that. So, but he spoke with his mouth full and that was fine and he apologized for it. Point of mentioning this is that I found him to be just a bloke, which is how he likes to portray himself. Um, if you see in person interviews with him, uh, when he presents his material, I think that he is trying to present an all-encompassing worldview, kind of the, a, a worldview that answers all questions. And each individual segment of one of his presentations, for example, is interesting in itself. You know, he might talk about uh, politics or the economic system or the education system, and he may talk about uh, Saturn and cosmic rays, and it's all interesting. It's all fascinating. But when he puts it all together, I think it's overwhelming and I think that he would have probably gained more traction in with the mainstream, if not the media, then certainly with the population, if he'd narrowed it down a little bit 
and honed it a little bit more. But again, he's presenting the world and life, the universe and everything as he sees it. But I do think that's a problem with a lot of people who sense that there's something up. Yeah, this, you know, they look out the window, they look on TV and go, yeah, there's something wrong with this. You know, it's a bit like you mentioned they live or the matrix. Somebody just said, mm, I don't, you know, because I went through this as a child. There's something not quite right about this. What is it? Uh, but to them to say, aha, you know, I found the master key and here it is, is it's, it's too simplistic and, um, it's not satisfying. And I don't think it answers the questions, basically echoing what you said a moment ago. Mm. Yeah, well, it, it's polarizing also, and we're seeing that in the culture now and in the society. And I think, as as within, so without, that it, it, it's an internal polarization that then gets uh, <clears throat> materialized on that exteriorized outside on a collective level. So, as I say, if we if if we try and come up with a, if basically we need this sort of all inclusive worldview, as you say. Uh, that we we get conditioned with as children, we we feel we need it to survive, obviously to function in society and to to advance within society as we're programmed or conditioned to do. Uh, we rely on that, that all-inclusive worldview and the general belief that it, it's it's shared, you know, it's consensual. Um, as that starts to come apart, it, it's an inevitable uh, re- reflex or reaction to try and create. Uh, uh, a new all-inclusive worldview to replace the one that we're losing, and um, so so that that's already a split in ourselves because um, it doesn't really work. We 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 create two opposing worldviews, and we're you know neither of them are fully satisfactory. They they can be used to um, to uh, oppose each other and perhaps cancel each other out, but that's that's a really terrifying idea because then we end up with no worldview at all, right? So generally we just move back and forth from one to the other if we can't just stay hunkered down in the one, right? So I think, um, as I say, that that's also reflected outside as we're seeing more and more polarization in the world. Um, and, and so somebody like David Icke or, or Alex Jones is another obvious famous example. Uh, is popular pr- precisely for that reason. Like they're they're appealing to a certain demographic that's that's emigrating, as it were, from the the primary consensus to the secondary consensus, and thereby helping to create it. And then that creates that that opposition or that polarization with, within society. And the two the two reinforce each other. They kind of prop each other up. Yeah, that's a very important point. Uh, that I don't, I think I don't think I've really articulated that before about the two. They really do feed each other. Let me put another point to you from what you just said about the not knowing. Uh, you know, you're going from this primary matrix to a secondary one. People are migrating from one to the other. That's increasing. Uh, we have, and this is a point I've made many times in interviews here, is that human beings have a sort of really innate, uh, need for a worldview that's coherent. I found that as what the worldview that I was sent packing with when I was a child off to school, you know, there's your lunch, there's your worldview, enjoy. As the worldview started to come apart and I was trying to grasp for understanding of that and pieces of, okay, well, if that's not the case, then what is the case? 
although I've spent a long time trying to, you know, grasp, reach for, for, for that meaning and understanding, I, at the end of every day, it's like, okay, another day when I don't really know what's going on. <laughs> and it's not through want of trying, but I, I'm, com- I'm comfortable with that. In fact, I, get quite playful with it at times and so it makes me laugh sometimes certainly i really don't know what's going on life the universe and everything don't ask me so how have you felt about that over the trajectory of your life um not so much with in the context of your book and your writing obviously you had all this these very personal issues but in the sort of how can i put it the intellectual dimension of your life where you've been considering uh meaning an existence are you comfortable with with not knowing more or less comfortable than you used to be in the past yeah well i'm laughing because it's um it's kind of my brand now the liminality or liminalism even is kind of active participation in liminality which is you know another way of saying that to me would be would, would be not knowing like accepting a condition of not knowing the liminal realm being you know the space between so again we've left one worldview uh but we we've resisted the urge to just dive right into a, another worldview that's waiting that's ready made for us we just stay in the on the threshold um until until we do know and maybe ne- we never will i mean maybe maybe that's all we can know is that is that we can't know anything of course it's a total cliche and so i would uh, uh, i don't want to get stuck in a cliche either because then it it becomes well obviously it's a self-contradicting thing anyway so one can have conviction about not having convictions and so on right so what i would say that that is become more tangibly real to me rather than just this intellectual position of okay i will admit that i don't know is that um, there is something in me that can know, but it cannot be translated into uh, mentalized concepts. Like, as long as I'm referring to concepts or to intellectual models or constructs, then um, I'm uh, leaving the awareness or the um, experience of, of knowing. I, now I, I can know something uh, in my body just as we can know if we're hungry say let's use a really simple example uh, there are many other things I think that I can know in my body that aren't so simple and that if I were to try and translate them into words I, I would get into quicksand very quickly right if I say I'm hungry and I know I'm hungry nobody's going to want to argue me there's no philosophical you know controversy around that i if, if i say i'm hungry well you could psychoanalyze me maybe i'm a food addict and so on but but you know outside of my own personal neuroses uh we can assume that i more or less know you know when i'm hungry and whether i overeat or or, or not is a is a separate thing that the body itself does know when it's hungry right uh we can override that and we can interfere with that and i think um this is just a handy model that i'm just throwing out now but um that it does extend to everything i do believe that we can know everything through the body with the body as a point of reference and by know everything i don't mean as in we can have an encyclopedic knowledge of the universe which is how i used to think of uh enlightenment as being i mean merely that we can have a felt sense of what is happening uh, in any given moment uh, in all, at all the levels, you know, from the most mundane and the most profane to the highest and most 
sacred or sacrosanct. Um, and, and so somewhere in between yeah, bread and um, God is, is the circus of, of conspiracy and, 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 you know, what's going on in the world, the bread of the world, or rather the circus of the world. And I think that's the hardest realm to know. Like, it's easy for me to feel I know, uh, you know what's good bread and what's not good bread, like what basic physical needs, although actually that is quite hard. Um, and it's easy for me to know that there is a divine presence in my life of transmission that is coming from some deep realm of my own being that is truly meaningful, my own spiritual orientation, let's say. Those are easier for me to know and feel sure about than the in-between realm about what's going on in this world. And I think there is something inherently sticky and uh, uh, trapping or, 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 you know, imprisoning about this world. Of course, that's the Christian viewpoint. And this is uh, its interesting to me because it's actually something I've been thinking about just in the last few hours. Um, you know, how much that my attempt to understand the world itself is a kind of trap that I really want to learn not to keep falling back into. Yes, well, and many people flinch from that, retreat from it, or don't even approach it in the first place. I, I find myself experiencing some frustration, which is something I, I hate to admit to ever experiencing with other people. I, I just don't I don't think about it. I don't want to know. I don't care. You know, let's just talk about bread. Or on the other hand, let's just talk about God. So, And I, I've wondered about that. Is, is that wandering in itself? Is that questing a, a trap or a burden? Also, I, I do have this very strong feeling gleaned over uh, my lifetime that, that we're here to learn. And that's a cliche in itself. But it, the phrase resonates with me in some way that it isn't invalid or pointless or meaningless or fruitless to ask these questions or to look at these things. But it's just to be aware of the fact of, of what you're doing. It's just to be conscious about it, not to get lost in it. Uh, and I don't want to, from what I said prior to your answer, my previous question, I don't want to make it sound like I want to be equivocal about everything. There are certain things that I feel like you're quite certain about, like, you know, like actions have consequences and that good and evil are concepts that we, that we can grasp and that we can manifest and that we should love more and hate less. These are things that I kind of have an instinctive feeling for understanding of. So it's not that I'm kind of just saying that, you know, uh, anything goes and nothing matters. Right. Uh, far from it. Just to take a sideways step, we've mentioned, well, social engineering is one of the key phrases uh, related to your book. Uh, we've talked already about the realm of politics, economics, education, what have you. And we said early on that we'd, we'd talk in more concrete terms about some of these things, uh, how they've been playing out in our society. Uh, so let's say something about Fabianism, uh, say just to put some meat on the bones. Uh, for people who don't know, whatever form it tends to take, if we, if we leave aside totalitarian regimes, which in themselves usually tend to have a left or right flavour, in a lot of the politics that most people are used to thinking about, we have left-right paradigms, uh, another phrase beloved of conspiracy theorists. But let's say something about Fabianism. You just explain to people in the context of your book uh, why this is important and that will give us a jumping off point for um, a few things we can discuss about how, th you know, how we find ourselves where we are now. So the famous study started with the Fellowship of the New Life, which was uh, 1883, coincidentally the year of Marx's death. And of course, Marx was in London at the time, at this time, as is known by Marxists. And um, 
but there isn't uh, there's no evidence that I could find that Marx was actually directly involved with the formation of the fellowship of the new life or the Fabian Society, but certainly that the founding members of the of the Fabian Society were aware of Marx and were interested in his work that much is is is, is pretty definite. Um, so the, the founding Fabian members uh, uh, included Sidney and Beatrice Webb. Um, George Bernard Shaw is probably the most famous. Uh, there was a spiritualist called Frank Podmore, and um, Havelock Ellis is a very is another very significant Fabian. In some ways, probably the most significant in my research because he was he was like a forerunner of Alfred Kinsey, like he was a very early sexologist and um, a pioneer in terms of of researching human sexuality and using that research for um, formulating uh, strategies for social engineering, let's say, or at least his work was used in that regard. Uh, um, uh, as far as the Fabian thing, uh, I guess one of the key elements there is, is what is Fabian. It comes from, from uh, Fabius, who was a uh, Roman general. Quintus Fabius, and uh, his policy was to, uh, as a military strategist, was fighting guerrillas, or rather fighting with guerrillas. He defended Rome from Hannibal's mighty Carthaginian army. His tactics involved gradualism and terrorism and delaying tactics. So this idea of, so he would starve out the enemy would be one obvious example. Um, <clears throat> So the, the principle that the Fabian society adopted from Fabius was of gradualism, of incremental change or progress, uh, with you know a, a long-term goal of conquest, ruling the world uh, would be obviously the the broad-stroke version of that, but of influencing and shaping society um, towards a uh, a long-term goal which I won't even attempt to try and sum up, via the infiltration of various key levels of society. So education would be obviously a primary one. Politics, they founded the um, the uh, Labour Party. Uh, science, there's the research, intelligence, uh, literature, uh, the arts in general, they were particularly active within the arts. One of the terms that, that they, they used to describe themselves was permeators, the, the, the idea of permeating society. So, and they were, all, they were all wealthy, the Fabians, just as my family was wealthy. Um, and they therefore they already had uh, a lot of connections, and so they would use those connections to extend their influence. They would you know, sow seeds through all the various different methods at their disposal, and they would convert, and and then they would extend their influence this way. And um, I think probably the, the the most compelling thing about the Fabian Society and their influence is that it's it's a soft influence in that it's possibly anyway primarily through through an ideology. An ideology and a methodology, you could say, so that one doesn't necessarily have to um, establish that a given group or institution that is seen to have a huge amount of influence, such as the Rand Institute in the U.S., say, uh, 
has it is overtly or even covertly Fabian, but we can see that we can see the ways in which they have adopted Fabian ideas, uh, methods, and goals. Then we could say that they have been Fabianized. And um, m- my view loosely is that, is that the whole of Britain has, has, was Fabianized. It was successfully Fabianized, um, and to a certain degree. The fact that the Fabian society is almost unknown outside of conspiracy circles and among the elite, obviously familiar with it, is, is, is testament to its, its efficacy, I think, in terms of two, two main ways, really. One is, is that for, uh, for something to proceed via, um, covert influence, if it can do so and remain hidden, that's, that's obviously a testimony to its success. The other way is also more subtle, which is that, um, if ideas can be implemented in society in such a way that they, uh, over time, incrementally and almost invisibly become the norm, they establish the, uh, ideological framework for society, let's say, then they are by, ne- by definition invisible, because they're just the, the fabric from which the culture is woven, so we don't see them. So I think that this is kind of useful to come back to that earlier point about Jimmy Savile and, and the thing you said about how the conspiracy, in quotes, um, this social engineering long-term plan that involves, you know, countless groups and individuals and philosophies and all the rest somehow working together organically, that it, it's, although it does have a covert aspect, it also has more surprisingly, and I think more predominantly or more significantly, significantly, a hide in plain sight aspect. And, and this relates to, um, yeah, how we are. It's a bit like the Jesuit thing. Give me, give me a child from, uh, until the age of seven and I will give you the man. Uh, if you think of that at a society level, if you think of, of, of certain, um, factions, Installing themselves, uh, sort of widespread, at a widespread and deep level of society as that society is, is, is transforming and growing and developing, then it, it's there at the very inception, obviously not the inception of British society, but the inception of a certain phase of British society. We're talking about here, aren't we? Because there's sort of the industrial revolution and, um, uh, various other things that you know, were, were coming into form at that time, obviously Marxism, Freudianism, psychoanalysis, sexual research, economics, uh, what's his name? Keynes. Uh, Maynard Keynes, yeah, Keynes, he was obviously the, you know, the leading economist, economicist of, of our time, and he was a Fabian, and so on. Uh, all these things are actually, you know, they're, they're being incepted as social movements, and so they end up really shaping, and obviously the Labour Party, uh, that shaping the society that we, you or I, were born into. So we wouldn't necessarily see any of these influences because they're the same influences that have shaped our own capacity to perceive and, and to interpret. You know, We just accept them as, as the norm. Well, that phrase, give me the child and I'll show you the man, encompasses about half of your book, actually, and in some very disturbing ways. Uh, yeah. As we'll discover, but th- this line of thinking that we've been talking about, this this attitude, this 
control freakery. I mean, what's the thinking behind it, in your opinion? I mean, what's the instinct? I mean, is it is it simply utopian? Um, does, does it want the best? I mean, you come across to me from what I've read of your work, similar to me, and so you seem like a live and let live kind of guy. And politically, I, I don't like labels for obvious reasons. But if I had to come down and, and select one from the, you know, from the menu of I would say I'm essentially an anarchist, which is like, just do what you want. Just don't hurt anybody and just leave me alone. But of course, as soon as you take that attitude, then you leave the door open, perhaps, for other people who don't have a live and let live sort of attitude. No, I'd say I want to take command of this and you will. I think this is the way things should go. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that, as it were. So I just wonder, from your perspective, what what drives this? And I, I think it is very deeply tied to formative experiences that individuals have uh in fact only today when i was just going through my uh points for our talk today did i look up the work of um now forgive me if i'm pronouncing this incorrectly but an individual called lloyd demos perhaps is how he pronounce his surname uh an american uh, psychologist i was previously unaware of of his books you know on uh, childhood and psychology and how all that plays out in society but i think that's got tremendous relevance i think the world that we see around us and the maladies we see around us again tying it very very much back to not just theories that you have but your own lived experience um are hugely influenced by our lives as as children yeah and i think that that's a much safer route to take in terms of trying to understand what motivates these people and, and well, I guess that mainly, like what they're trying to achieve, one can can find out by reading the text. Like it's, a lot of it isn't secret, as I show in uh, Vice of Kings, although it, it tends to be couched, uh, nested in a, a, a sort of deceptive context, such as the work of Bertrand Russell, which seems like it's written by a humanist, uh, and somebody who's concerned about human beings um, and and is presenting a sort of cautionary tale, I'd say the same with Brave New World and Huxley, uh, are these books cautionary tales or are they uh, blueprints, which the the elite have been following, you know, laid down early on and, and shared among themselves and even made available to the public in such a way that most of us wouldn't understand the real intent behind them. So as far as the goals, I think that, 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 that those are laid out quite openly um, in various different places and from various different sources. But regarding the um, the motives, uh, I think that well, obviously, one can try and extrapolate the conscious motives by analysing the goals and, and the rationales, but I think it's probably less useful than where you were going now with Lloyd DeMouse by looking at the the kind of psychological formation that leads um, individuals to want to uh, basically direct the evolution of the species at a social sociological level like what what would drive people to do that and i think that the reason that this is a safer approach besides i mean like we don't want to take people's word for why they're doing what they're doing because we do know that even from our own lives that we we don't necessarily know why we do what we do you know and our conscious motives are often uh concealing much deeper unconscious motives so so there's that 
Um, and so then how do we psychoanalyze, you know, individuals that we've never met and that are long dead? Well, the, the answer to that is we can look at ourselves. We can refer to ourselves and our own, um, psychological strategies and so on and so forth. So that's what I've been doing more and more through my work. I've been looking at these larger scale case histories, whether it's Whitley Strieber, whether it's movies, whether it's Fabianism or Crowley and so on, and using them as a mirror by which to understand my own psychology. And then, as I'm able to proceed or make progress that way, then I can flip it around again and apply what I've seen about my own psychology to what I'm seeing in these, you know, more large-scale cases. So then, um, what, what, what you're asking about in terms of why would individuals gather together in, in groups and try and steer the course of history with possibly the best of intentions, or even presumably the best of intentions, I think the answer, once again, can be simplified as Lloyd de Mouse does simplify it, although it's very complex, his, his data base uh, to trauma, to early formative trauma, and how that creates a split in us and um, a fragmentation that gives rise to a particular aspect of the psyche that is all about control. It's all about maintaining absolute control over its environment and others in order to feel safe. And that will come up with legions of rationales for that and is also very cunning strategically like it's a survival based um persona let's say or or it's a, a you know part of the psyche that gets emphasized we can actually see this in in in, in um again you know just ordinary childhood the children develop strategies to deal with the with the environment that they, that they grow up in they develop aspects of their personality that will that will um, protect them and strategies of behavior that will give them as much advantage and as much control as they can within that hostile environment. So you can see that just throughout the world if you just look at your, you know, yourself and your siblings and people you've known. It's, 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 a, it's a universal human coping mechanism. And I think what I'm trying to map with Vice of Kings is how when that is very extreme, when the trauma is extreme and it doesn't simply destroy the person, which is 99 times out of 100, in these one in 100 cases, the tra extreme trauma leads to the creation of a very extreme kind of diamond-hard sociopathic personality type, alter, that is incredibly sophisticated in terms of cunning, um, ingenuity, ruthlessness, uh, patience, charisma, strategies that, you know, or, or maybe not strategies, but qualities that, uh, if combined with a driving ambition, uh, which is also part of, you know, an early trauma imprint, that, that, uh, we, we feel so insecure in our lives and so deprived of love that we'll do absolutely anything to gain a position of of, of uh, influence in society or a feeling of being actually powerful and loved in some sense or at least respected uh, you can see how all of these things could be if they were combined in the perfect storm of a a kind of um, I guess it would be a kind of super ego persona that really believes that it 
it, it knows what's best for everyone and that ha- has the means to take charge not only of its own life but of everyone else's life you know given given enough uh, opportunity then um, then it will do so and I think I mean that's why I look at in Vice of Kings is I mean where it began is is, is impossible to try and map but the that this could be engineered deliberately by people who were victims of this kind of trauma and driven and shaped in such a way to to do so would then develop those kind of child-rearing, trauma-based uh, practices that would then create the kind of leaders that they needed to maintain their hegemony and so on and so forth. And it would just continue exponentially in that, in that way. But uh, you know, I'm wary of going too far with that because then one does get into this broad stroke conspiracy theory. So so my but my proviso is that this insofar as I've been able to sort of speculate about that and to some extent I think map it on a large scale, it's only because I have recognized that in my own in my own life, in my own psychology, my own trauma, my own coping strategies and so on and so forth. Like it's there, I I, I can see it and I can establish it in my own life, as part of the process of healing it and getting free of it, I hope. But um, it's still irrefutable evidence in that regard. Also, my brother's life, obviously, he was was my first case study in this regard, really, because I I was under his thumb. You know, I was traumatized and bullied by him, but I also loved him very much, and I watched him destroy himself. And I needed to understand why, and and um, so I I kind of grew up seeing all of these different methods, philosophies, strategies, psychological principles, whatever you know. There's all kinds of different aspects to it. Seeing them at play, but not not understanding them, just being subject to them and largely a victim of them, but also complicit with them. I'd just like to just take a few seconds out. Um, if listeners would like to find out a little bit more about thinking around formative experiences, particularly childhood experiences, and how these play out in the lives of public figures, particularly politicians and particularly in the UK, uh, they could, if they go to legalisefreedom.com, they can find interviews, two of, at least two of which I've done with Nick Duffel on his books, uh, Wounded Leaders, also Trauma, abandonment and privilege these are about the public school systems they're very specific books but they echo um, a lot of what you're speaking of and they go into it in very specific detail picking up on a couple of things that you just said here we are airing our opinions in public as it were uh, with a potential audience of almost the entire earth so don't we want to change something but i don't i what I, I do what i do because i want to present thoughts and ideas to people that I would be grateful if they would consider, but I don't lose any sleep over it, if you see what I mean. I don't identify with it. I'd like to see the world evolve in a fruitful manner. I don't know how else to put it, you know, but I don't want, I've never wanted control over anyone's life other than my own. And so I put my thoughts to bed at night, literally, as I do myself, and that's it. I'm fine. I don't wake up screaming or in a cold sweat or anything like that, feeling that I need to change something in order to be uh, fulfilled or justified or whole or anything like that. So I think that's wanting to discuss ideas, think about where we 
come from, where we are, where we're going, and engage with uh, other members of the species is somewhat different to a compulsion to wanting to feel that you have control of yourself, your own life, in almost a religious way, making people like, molding people like yourself. So in order to validate yourself, because, oh, that person over there to the left and that person to the right and that person in front of me and behind me, they're like me, so I feel better about how I am. And if they're not like me, then I need to change that because I don't feel that me being just me is sufficient or enough. In fact, it may be the opposite of that. Well, it is a spectrum, as I'm always saying, about just about everything. Um, I think we exist on spectrums within spectrums. And again, back to this refutation of the conditioned, enculturated idea of us and them, of either or, of polarities, I don't think that that's a true perspective on existence, even night and day, or especially night and day, are not polarities, as twilight and as dawn. And um, so, in this regard, uh, I think that, yeah, relative to a person's psychic wholeness or health, they will be, as you say, um, uh, content with, with merely having dialogues and interacting with other human beings any way they can in a civil and a respectful and, and loving way as we can and that's sufficient. We will live and let live, you know. Um, but uh, that, that I would say that's, that's, that's pretty rare. Like, souls of that sort of sufficient wholeness to, to, to really just live and let live are very rare in this world and and I think perhaps becoming increasingly rare, I'm not sure, because of course I don't know all 7 billion people, but certainly in terms of what we're seeing with, as as we talked about, the increased polarization, so with identity politics and, uh, well, you know, all that's going on in the world now, uh, uh, ideologically speaking, um, it does seem as though there are more and more, run- there is more and more runaway narcissism in our world, which relates to what you're describing there, I think, the desire to actually turn everyone into a, into a, a mirror of oneself in order to feel safe. And um, I think that that is symptomatic of the, of the, the sorts of um, trends that, that I've been mapping in my work. And, and I, I also say that I think one of the things that does make me somewhat qualified to write about this is that I am closer to the spectrum, uh, to the end of the spectrum uh, of this sort of sociopathic personality that I'm writing about than than the other end and certainly closer than I would like to be I am somebody who's more likely to wake up screaming <laughs> in the middle of the night feeling I've got to do something you know, I, I used to believe I was the one and partly from too much psychedelics but I think mainly from the kind of childhood traumatic, traumatic childhood you know, uh, rearing practices that I was um Subject to, I, I was raised within a, a, a an elitist family, and I was traumatized by it in ways that I don't even remember. And I think that, and I know that I did really want to change the world. I wanted to, uh, I mean, in a very apocalyptic way. I was also, I've also always been an anarchist. So my idea of changing the world, I mean, not literally, but I mean, if, if I had any kind of political affiliation, that would be the only one possible, because I always saw part. You know, political uh, institutions as inherently uh, evil or whatever, malevolent. So, uh, yeah. So, so my 
my visions about changing the world were kind of anarchistic or destructive. Like I thought well, I needed to bring about the destruction of uh, civilization in order to free the human soul uh, to be itself. And I and I even wrote a book about it called Matrix Warrior. And you know what was my surprise in my late forties when, as I began to discover that that was all programmed or conditioned into me, and that destroying the fabric of society is what Fabianism and, and these other covert agendas uh, seem to be all about. So we're both essentially anarchists. Then, uh, for me, that was always about letting the old order decay as opposed to sort of uh you know sex pistols idea of like throwing dustbins through um high street shop windows or whatever <laughs> yeah for me it's more about passivity actually it mm-hmm. definitely would definitely was nothing about and i've never been passive i've been overactive actually i'd say but politically speaking it was about just let the system uh grind itself down to a halt because it's it's so inherently self-contradictory and self-cancelling and self-destructive and corrupt and all the rest of it. And it's been so apparent to me and more and more apparent that every attempt to fix it just created more problems. You know, Every, every apparent solution created ten more problems. Uh, it's like the hydra. It seems to be like human society as a problem is like the hydra. That we, we don't know how to live together as long as we're referring to you know, mental uh, ideation that is sourced in coping mechanisms of a traumatized psyche. We're never, never going to get it right. I'm convinced of that. Well, that sort of idea of letting a political system grind to a halt is almost like laying a siege in a way, but, you know, just sitting outside the castle waiting for them to run out of food. And it almost begins to sound Fabian in a way, doesn't it really? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, well, except that Fabian, yeah, they're very active. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's probably some overlap. It's like one of the things I've had to discover or acknowledge, the more I've looked into what I see as these counterfeit ideologies and philosophies and beliefs and all the rest of it, is that they do take a lot of truths. They take the truths and then they re, re they reformulate them and they, and they redirect them towards some distortion that is inherently deceptive. And I, and I think that that's the most destructive aspect of all of, of, all of this, is that, is that the truth has been so thoroughly co-opted and weaponized that most of us don't even trust it when we see it anymore. Oh, I mean, I don't know if this was ever said by any one person in particular, but the, the best lies, if there can be a best lie, are partly true. I remember reading that. I think it was probably in a, a book by Giles Brandreth, actually, for one of the books he wrote for kids about excuses for not having done your homework, which was like always in, uh, include an element of truth in your excuse. <laughs> well, that's good fiction writing, absolutely, of course. But I think it's, it go, I mean, some of the stuff I look at seems it's even more surprising and pernicious than that. It's, it's, it's almost as though actually you, you take the whole truth, but then you, you somehow just spin it in such a way, you, re- you emphasize aspects of it that shouldn't be emphasized, and you de-emphasize uh, others, and, and you end up with, I suppose it's weaponized truth is now the cliche. I mean, it's like religion is the obvious example. Like, I think there's a great deal of truth in the gospel. I think the Christian tenets, personally, I think are, are probably true, even down to to Christ and the Incarnation. I mean, that, that's just me. I'm not going to try and sell that to anyone, but I, I, I do find real 
profound truth in in those uh, interpretations of reality, probably more than any other I could think of. But that doesn't make me a Christian. There's no way in hell I don't think that I'd ever become a Christian because the emphasis is all wrong. Okay, Jason. Well, we've kind of running out of time for today, but we're going to come back in the very near future and complete our conversation with part two of all this. Uh, In the meantime... As I mentioned at the top of the hour, we've been discussing your latest book, The Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse. Um, That's out very soon, widely available everywhere, all the usual outlets. Um, Just before we sign off, uh, perhaps you'd like to share with listeners details of your website, where they can find all of your writings, your details of your books, your blog, uh, your podcasts and whatnot. Okay, thanks, Greg. Uh, the website is auticulture.com. That's A-U-T-I culture.com. You can find all the information there about my, my recent books. Uh, there's also a weekly podcast I do that's there at the site. It's called the Limitless Podcast Between. I do that uh, every Wednesday, roughly. I'm also doing weekly live events on YouTube currently on Saturday mornings. That's uh, West Coast time. Uh, and currently working on uh, a series called Psychological Operatives in Hollywood for those who'd like to just uh, get uh, some sense of my writing without taking the plunge and buying a book. Splendid. Well, once again, Jason, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yeah, thanks, Greg. It's fun. Let's, let's do it again. That concludes part one of our interview. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. If you enjoyed the show, check out the website, which is LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including politics and economics, energy and environment, culture, spirituality, history, and the nature of reality. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>